Hello and welcome back to the Garden Podcast. Spring is in the air and I'm here in our Peterborough office where the plants both indoors and outdoors are looking pretty good, especially after all that warm weather at the end of February. I'm Chris Young, editor of The Garden magazine. Each month in this podcast, I talk to people involved in creating our RHS monthly magazine and explore some of the stories behind the stories in its glossy pages. April's edition should be arriving on your doorstep any day now. One of the features we've got is by Melissa Mabbitt, one of our writers, and she's done an article on the state of the UK nursery industry. This is obviously really timely, not just because of the time of year, but because of the B word, but also because of the challenges that the industry is facing, both in garden centres, in retail and across supermarkets as well. I spoke with Melissa a little earlier and asked her about her key findings from the article. I think we spend so much time talking to nurseries as a part of our day-to-day job. We get anecdotal evidence and we sort of build up a picture in our own mind. And I think sometimes that maybe picture can be a little bit negative and we we have our worries, people maybe, neg- you know... A bit doom-laden. A bit doom-laden, yeah. yeah. So we wanted to go out and see if that was really what the truth was and whether that really was the case or if there were some things to be more positive about. So I hope we've done that with this article. So in terms of setting the scene, what we you've been looking at is independent plant nurseries. So... Mm. I'm sure, and I know that you've been speaking to some of the bigger players, but we are really trying to focus on those independent plant nurseries that come to the RHS flower shows or might Mm. be at plant heritage displays. They're the ones who are growing the plants, celebrating kind of unique genera or species Mm. or collections of plants. And so for me... And for you and for everybody in the RHS, we know we really want to support these people and we know they're the lifeblood of interesting plants and interesting gardens. From your point of view, what were maybe one, two, three of the key highlights, exciting things that you found out from your research? Well, I think the research showed that actually there's perhaps more growth in the market than we were expecting. And that might be partly down to the Brexit effect and that people are being forced to look at their own supply chains and they're looking for more security in their supply chain. So that is meaning that people are growing more of their own stock. And also what was really exciting is some people, there was an example of Fibrex really using social media and using kind of a novel approach to communication to really drive sales. So opening up the marketplace that way and smaller growers as well who are kind of finding niches and really kind of taking advantage of niches using technology, using new communications to kind of sell their plants in a different way. That was quite exciting. One of the things that we've been discussing in the office has been the challenges that Mm. small independent plant nurseries face. And we know, again, anecdotally, that there are some successional or generational Mm. issues in families. Mm -hmm. So a mother and father might have started a nursery and their children, who are maybe 20, 30, 40, 50, they don't necessarily want to take the nursery Mm. on. So we were worried, weren't we, that this was actually going to be across all of the industry. But again, you found some pockets of quite interesting changes or Mm. challenges that people were responding well to. Yeah. So I think the biggest challenge that people are facing is succession and staffing. So yes, as you say, they might not necessarily have anybody to hand the business on to. And a lot of people who have started their nurseries perhaps in the 80s or early 90s are getting towards retirement age now. But also just staffing. So they haven't got people around them to help run the nursery maybe at the scale they'd like to because there just aren't the right people in the right place. So I found that 
quite a few people are having to restrict themselves when they go to shows to just one day shows or short shows. They can't really afford to go away for a week because they've got nobody to look after the stock back at the nursery. Yeah, this was a real surprise for me because mm. obviously we see these people at the shows all the time. Mm. But, and actually sometimes I know at Tatton, when you talk to some of the people at our show at Tatton Park, mm. getting towards the end of July, the end of the season, they're getting mm. tired and the plants are needing a lot of watering at home. And you, you can see them rushing between the show and actually going mm. back to the nursery. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I hadn't really ever clocked the fact that, yeah, you've got to rely on people. You do, especially yeah. if you're away for a show at five, six yeah. days. Uh-huh. Who's running the nursery? Who's keeping on top of the yeah. watering? Who's keeping on top of sales? And it's people with expertise as well. So it's mm. not just, you know, getting in staff to just look after the plants. They need to have some expertise on how to look after those plants. So it's finding those people is a challenge. Let's just talk about the scale of this, because, again, it's just important that we keep on remembering this was looking at independent plant nurseries, about the opportunity that these nurseries can have in the UK. Obviously, we've been running RHS Plant Finder for more than 30 years. Um, and you know this is a great indicator of uh, the number of nurseries in the UK. It's not an exhaustive list. Not mm. every nursery wants to be in Plant Finder. Mm. But you've, there are some really good useful stats that you found out of this? So we looked at data going back to the millennium, 2000, and basically the number of nurseries in the plant finder has nearly halved. So we've gone down from 837 nurseries in 2000 to this year um, it's 482. On the headline, that does look quite scary, doesn't it? That's that's quite a big reduction. But drilling down a bit further and talking to people, it's not necessarily that bad news because being in the plant finder is voluntary and 20 years ago it was a really good way to advertise your business it's kind of the only way yeah, really wasn't yeah. it to get to your consumer yes exactly but these days because of the advent of the internet social media it's not so important for nurseries to be in the plant finder because the really interesting number for me which i'd mm. never seen before was 61 the average number of new nurseries listed each year yeah. mm. and that for me is it kind of supports your case it may be mm. a smaller number in total yeah. but actually the number of new nurseries coming mm. through there are new businesses which shows us yes. a great yeah. life blood and excitement in the industry yeah and it's still worth as i say i mean people might not feel like they need to be in the plant finder because they've got their website but actually because the plant finder is also online it's still a good way for people to plant find nurseries online so it's still worth them appearing in there one of the other things I, i really just wanted to ask was also you know what was your feeling about the future what are the nurseries saying about where the next few years are heading so one of the people that we looked at in the feature was a guy called Will Purdom who is has a new nursery he's very young he's really quite a young grower on the face of things he's only 23 by hook or by crook he's finding ways to grow plants and then sell them online and it goes to shows but he's actually managed to get a successful business up and running basically by using a couple of his parents big garden a neighbor's garden and he's also kind of using micro prop which he can do in his own bedroom even. Can you just explain what that is? Oh micro propagation so you're literally growing plants from tiny scraps of genetic material it's propagation like cuttings but almost on a kind of microscopic scale you can grow it from that point to a mature plant for sale so it's a very efficient way of growing plants as well so he's doing this quite an exciting kind of individual he's probably the only person that i really found who's doing it but he said that there may be more people his age who are getting more interested in plants who might start growing in that way and there's also opportunities around using things like microprop but also the new lighting that's available and also hydroponic growing so the major challenge to young people starting up nurseries is the cost of land and the space real estate Mm. so the way that they might get over that is by using this new technologies like lighting which means that they can grow in smaller spaces which means they can get into the industry so that might be something that happens we'll have to watch the space and see in terms of the kind of 
old guard of nurseries who are maybe reaching retirement age, I think the next five, 10 years will see those people reach retirement age and probably either have to find succession or, or shut up shop. The big worry with that is what will happen to the plant material and potentially quite rare genetic diversity they have within their collections. But we have seen examples where that's happened, but actually another nursery with the younger owners will take that on. So for example, it's um, there was a Clivia collection, I think it was actually a national collection that's been taken on in the last few years by Hoyland, I think it was. So hopefully we'll see that happening where, you know, these collections will just have a, will find their own succession. Melissa Mabbitt. You can read her article in the April edition of The Garden. If you're an RHS member, you'll be getting this magazine free. And if you're not a member, then why not? Please join. Visit the website rhs.org.uk where you can sign up. Here in the office in Peterborough, we're just putting the last few pages of the April edition to bed. And there's a few highlights I want to bring your attention to. One of the features I wanted to draw your attention to is something called a hell strip. And we've got a small feature on this. And this is an idea that's come from the States, where it's really about those grass verges along a pavement and by a road, where in the UK, it often gets a bit muddy or a bit grassy. But in the States, they're encouraging people to plant these verges up. To me, it's a brilliant idea and a great way to green up a town or a city, but also reconnects people with nature and the seasons and the plants. It's a really curious idea and something that the author hopes people will really latch onto and maybe introduce to the UK. So that's a really good feature just to look out for something a bit different. One of my favourite, if I'm allowed to have a favourite writers, and I'm sure I share this with many people, is Anna Pavord. She writes so beautifully, so eloquently, and I'm just hugely jealous of the way she can put words and phrases together, especially describing plants and their unique attributes. She's done a beautiful feature all about spring flowering trees. This is something that, again, we probably know about because most people will know about magnolias or maybe some cherry blossom, but she's really highlighted the unique and most discerning element of these trees and really convinces us why we should be having them in our garden. As ever with our plant features, we've also got one of our photographic plates and this is the USP of the magazine where we bring different selections of plants together and photograph them all at the same time. It's such a cheery, uplifting feeling to spring and it just makes you want to go out, as so many of the articles do, to go out and actually buy some of these plants and plant them in your garden. One of the things that we are really pushing across the RHS at the moment is really the importance of planting for communities, for health and well-being, and for improving our environments, especially our urban environments. And our RHS Life Editor, Heather Gregg, has done an article over five pages looking at different gardening projects around the UK, which are part of our Greening Grey Britain campaign. This is something that is really close to my heart, both locally but also nationally, and it's really important that we get as many people connected with plants and with nature as possible. And through schemes, through our outreach projects, through Britain and Bloom, through our community work, we're hopefully getting to more and more people, young and old, to share our delight and enjoyment in gardening. And this feature just brings some of those key schemes to the readers and to celebrate why it's so important to be getting out there and sharing our passion for plants. 
Every issue in the magazine, we always focus on an RHS plant trial. These are absolutely essential because they help gardeners with the award of garden merit and they tell all of us what are the latest findings for different plants. And they are both ornamental plants and fruit and vegetables. And Sarah Wayne, who was the former garden supervisor at West Dean, uh, has done a great piece for us all about aubergines. And it is mouth-watering, not only the way to grow them and the tips and advice that she shares, but also the photography where you can see that they go from small white to more of a reddy colour and then into that lovely dark aubergine claret colour that are so well recognised. It's a great piece and if you enjoy growing your own and enjoy aubergines then this is for you. One other item that's caught my eye in this issue is all about growing media. It's in the advisory section which is actually written by our friends and colleagues down in RHS Garden Wisley. So joining me now is my deputy editor Phil Clayton to discuss it more. So Phil, why did we want to do this article? I think... It's quite confusing when you first go to a garden centre and you're faced by all those powers of different compost and you're trying to keep in your mind which plants you've got at home that need to be repotted and you're looking around trying to work out which ones work out best for you. And it's a range that's only increased really with the demands on more environmentally responsible compost and sustainably sourced material that goes into the compost. So more than ever really, it's a bewildering range and hopefully the article will help clarify the thought process you need to go through before you choose the right compost before we go into that this is something that we've been talking about in the office and in the rhs for many many years now and it has been confusing hasn't it for gardeners about what is actually in the market for people what is peat free what's peat reduced why we should be going down this route and and actually have some of us having to relearn what different composts do i think it is a really challenging time it has been people have known for a long time that peat-based compost is having a negative effect on some environments we know that using peat-based compost may be contributing towards uh, higher co2 emissions so there's a lot of reasons why it would seem to be a very sensible idea to move away from peat and try using some of these other more sustainably sourced materials such as composted garden waste or coir that's the a very well-known one. I mean, that's been around for 20, 30 years now, hasn't it, Koya? Yeah, there's lots of good reasons why we should why we should move away from it. It feels like there hasn't really been a lead taken by any particular company, and it almost feels, I feel like, in the last five, three or four years, maybe five years, that there's actually fewer of these uh, alternatives, and people seem to be turning turning their back on them and going back to peat, which I think is more to do with misinformation and not understanding how to use the products rather than them not being as good as peat. I think some of them are almost, if not as good as peat, for many applications. The way that we've laid the article out isn't kind of a mind map, isn't it? It's like yeah. one of those old family health books mm. where you decide what you're doing and then you work out if you've got a lump or you need to see the doctor. Yeah. So we've broken it down into the purpose of the gardening activity, whether it's seed sowing or long-term containers, and then it kind of offers you a layering of different choices, doesn't it? Yeah, it's designed to be as simple as possible. So, I mean, we could have gone into much more depth, but that doesn't really help when you're trying to make a decision. So we've tried to make it very clear that for different purposes, you you need different sorts of compost. So for if you're raising seed, you really need a seed sowing compost to get the best results. Okay, some seed will come up perfectly well in, in multi-purpose, but if you really want the best, then you need to go for a seed sowing compost. And it's the same with some of the other more specialist composts further on. At the end of that piece, there's a piece about orchids. Uh, it mentions orchids and it mentions 
cacti and succulents. Different plants have different needs, basically, and so you need to match the compost accordingly. So from your experience, you're a great grower and a great plantsman. What have you been finding over the last few years in terms of the way that you use these different composts? It's really a story of finding composts to suit the plants and maybe adding things to the compost so if i'm growing succulents or something like that i'll probably buy a john innies or something like that and add grit to it when it comes to kind of more general potting displays like a pot of pelargoniums or an abutilon with some felicia or something underneath i am trying to use multi-purpose and in some years the multi-purpose that i've chosen has worked really well in other years it really hasn't and it's i'm not scientific about it i'm afraid so i don't know whether it's down to my care and the conditions that year or whether it's really down to the properties of the compost i have noticed that they don't seem to keep their structure for as long that's one thing i definitely have found i've they don't really last more than one one year a lot of them and, and, and feeding is a big issue i was going to say the feeding you yeah. know this is something both feeding and watering because yeah. i know that we've done a lot of research over the years about the way that the compost will absorb and retain moisture because they can dry out quite quickly can't i think they? they can they also don't dry out uniformly so you'll find the top dries out really quite quickly and you think crikey this really needs watering but actually at the bottom it's, it's still quite moist so in those circumstances it can actually be quite easy to overwater things and and so yeah but also about feeding as well you're yeah. finding that you've just got to be a bit more specific with your feeding yeah you've got to be a bit more on the ball i think i mean I, i'm very lazy at feeding try and do it once a week during the summer if i can but i've often forgotten the odd week and it doesn't really make any difference but with the replacement alternatives i think quite often the plants suffer more quickly if you miss a feed or two so the message for you really is just to get to know your compost better yeah. and just to be on top of it a bit more than I, I, we might have been 20 years ago? I think so. I think try them out for yourselves. Try them on things which are pretty tough, say your pots of pelargoniums or your begonias or, or the bedding things that you have in containers. Perhaps be a little bit more careful and uh, try the more tried and tested, you know, johninis or whatever for the more specialist plants that you have and just see how you get on, really. That's really all we can do. And I think we're, as the market moves more and more away from peat, we're just going to have to try and get used to this. And I think there's no reason why we shouldn't be able to grow almost exactly the same plants just as well. It just it needs a bit more thought and a bit more practice as to how to look after them. More on this, of course, in the advice pages of the magazine. And by the way, for those of you who use the advice service, there are some changes and improvements to the way that you can contact the team. Go to rhs.org.uk forward slash my advice to find out more. And finally, plastic. It's one of the biggest issues we face globally, and gardeners have a vital role to play in reducing and recycling the plastic that we've come to rely on in gardens. I, for one, am surrounded by black plastic pots at home, but also in twine, in plastic bags where we buy compost. Plastic really is omnipresent in the garden. And it's for this reason that we've asked Sally Nex, one of our regular columnists and a great gardener, to begin a series of personal articles about her desire to reduce plastic in the garden. I don't really like preaching to people, so it's not really about getting people to do anything or anything like that, but it's more just really showing people what's happened with me, really, because I've been trying to reduce the plastic in my garden now for a few years, actually, and it's something which I don't think anybody else is doing it to the extent that I'm doing it. It feels like a big scientific experiment, actually, and I'm enjoying it enormously. It's very intriguing. It's very challenging as well to come up with all these different solutions to something which isn't perhaps always instinctive you know the infrastructure as it were is not 
always automatically there. So you have to think around the subject a little bit. So it's been fascinating for me. And I just want to communicate some of that breaking new ground feeling, the idea that this could be just a new way to garden, really. I mean, it's really a new old way of gardening, because of course, a lot of these techniques have been very much in use before plastic came along. But for us, it feels new because it's like rediscovering it, I suppose. And I just want to communicate some of that feeling of discovering a whole new way of doing things. Obviously, plastic is a really big issue for everybody. And it really came to the fore last year with uh, David Attenborough's Blue Planet 2. But just give us an update on where you think gardening and the horticultural industry is in terms of use and dependency on plastic. Well, it's interesting that you should use those two phrases because gardening and the horticultural industry are at entirely different places, I think, with this. The thing is, what I've discovered really is that what might be possible for us as amateur gardeners in our own back gardens is really, really difficult for the horticultural industry. And of course, we're both very much intertwined. And uh, what happens in the horticultural industry has a bit of a knock on effect to what goes on in our gardens. But there are really good practical reasons why it's very, very difficult to produce plants commercially without using plastic, because the whole system is geared up towards producing plants, uh, great numbers of plants, very cheaply and very efficiently. And you can only really do that with plastic. It's very, very difficult to achieve that any other way. At home, however, we can be a little bit more inventive. We can do stuff like saving toilet rolls and making newspaper pots and all those kinds of things, which simply are not practical anywhere else. It does mean that at home, you can actually make many more inroads into gardening without plastic than you can on a sort of larger scale in garden centres and that kind of thing. So I do very much think that they're two different ways of approaching the issue, really. Having said that, the horticultural industry, they're really keen to do something about this and everybody's behind it. But the problem at the moment is that they can't really manage it very easily. At home, on the other hand, ordinary gardeners are really concerned about this, quite rightly so, too. And there's a huge amount that you can do, in fact, in your own back garden. In terms of the series, you've got these 10 topics you're going to be covering each month from March until December. Give us a highlight of some of the areas that you're going to be exploring. Well, it's really working my way through the gardening year. I mean, I'm going to be starting with sowing and pricking out and all of those kinds of tasks. That's actually the area where I found it most easy to go plastic free because, of course, there are wooden seed trays and newspaper pots and little modules that you can make. There's also wonderful things called soil blockers, which create these little blocks of compost, essentially. You don't even need any pot for those. Once you've created those, you just sow into the pot and it's rather a lovely process, actually. The plant behaves completely differently. Rather than doing that thing where they grow lots of roots and then the roots start going round and round and round inside the pot, when you're sowing into biodegradable pots or soil blocks, what happens is that the roots come out the side of the block and they get naturally air pruned. Basically, they die off as soon as they touch the air. So it means they just carry on growing without going round and round. It means the plants establish more quickly. I've been really quite surprised, actually, by the uh, improvement in my results that I've got as a result of doing this. It's something I didn't really expect. I mean, I was looking for substitutes for plastic, really, something that was going to be as good or nearly as good or something like that. What I didn't expect was to find that gardening without plastic is often better and you get better results, which really stunned me, actually. I couldn't quite work out, you know, why this was. But it's largely, I think, to do with the fact that you are not disturbing the plant's roots at all. And I think that we underestimate sometimes how damaging that can be, especially for young seedlings and, and young plants. 
Later in the series, I go on to look at, oh, lots of other types of plastic that we use in the garden. So things like hoses, irrigation and watering, that kind of thing. Plastic water butts, how to replace those with non-plastic alternatives. And then um, I'll also be looking at the, the ubiquitous compost sacks, for example, those kind of single-use plastic items that you get in the garden. Compost sacks are very easily reused for things like sort of carrying around green waste and things like that. But how do you get your compost without buying a compost sack as well. And in fact, that sort of issue of how to avoid plastic coming into the garden, even when you're not buying it yourself directly, like, for example, on plants that you buy and that kind of thing, that's a huge issue. And that's very much something that I'll be addressing as well. This is such an exciting conversation, Sally, because obviously you and I have been planning this series for a while now. But even just hearing you unearth and uncover some of these ideas, like the way the plant actually grows in a pot or a plastic-free pot, this actually could be quite not revolutionary, but it could really start to open up our minds to really consider a different way of growing and gardening. Well, this is it, you see, because for me, it's really extended a little bit beyond the issue of reducing plastic in the garden, actually. I mean, it sounds an odd thing to say because obviously that was the main incentive behind doing this. But I feel like I really have discovered a different way of doing things that's actually better. And I think in some ways we've been sort of conditioned really just to reach for plastic whenever we are out in the garden. We've been doing it for years and years and years and it's become a real habit. And we've not questioned whether it's the best thing to do, whether it's the best way of growing our plants. And really, I think that that kind of needs questioning now. You know, I I really hate these kind of received wisdoms and habits and things which nobody ever questions. And I think plastic very much does fall into that category. I think it's time that we started asking ourselves whether there is a better way to do it. If there isn't a better way to do it, then absolutely fine, you know, carry on using plastic. But if there is a better way to do it, then why aren't we doing that? So Sally, we're at the start of your series and and I really hope that um, members when they're reading it will get encouragement. We we certainly don't want to preach, we we certainly don't want to be unrealistic to people, but we just want to help open minds and open thoughts to maybe new ideas and new ways of doing it. What's your gut feeling? How excited are you for the series and, and for the year ahead in terms of your gardening? I can't wait to get stuck in, actually, because as well as uh, telling everybody about the things that I already do in the garden, there are various things that I want to try for the first time myself as well. You know, things like putting together an old fashioned glass cloche is on my list, for example. (laughs) I think I'm going to need a sort of degree in in macrame or whatever it is for that, because I know that it's very, very complicated and a little bit difficult. So I'm going to give that a go. Also things like using jute netting and all sorts of stuff like that and various different experiments that I've had in mind to take my own gardening forward. Um, So I'll be sharing those with everybody as I go forward. And I think, you know, I'm going to be learning as much as everybody else, as it were, because it's very much collecting the thoughts I've already had and just developing them a little bit more, really. Sally Nex. Her thought-provoking series all about plastic and the ways to reduce it in the garden continues monthly until the end of the year. Well, that's all we've got time for in today's edition of The Garden Podcast. We'll be back next month when we're getting ready for the greatest flower show on earth, which is, of course, Chelsea. But there's going to be other features in the magazine. One is going to be about Keith Wiley, a famous plantsman's garden down in Devon. Another is going to be sumptuous photography, all about RHS Garden Rosemont and its gully garden. And also we're going to be looking at that beautiful climber, Clematis Montana. Until then, from me, Chris Young, and all the team here at the magazine in Peterborough, goodbye. Goodbye.